0: Before we begin proceedings, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respects to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It's upon this their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning, research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of the country. Well, good evening everyone and thank you very much for coming to hear our wonderful speakers tonight on this most important of topics. My name's Tina Perinotto, and I'm the managing editor and publisher of The Fifth Estate. We're an online newspaper on sustainable property that was started seven years ago, and we cover topics that are central to the job of transforming our cities to a more sustainable built environment. Climate change and how to mitigate its impact is really the driving force of why we exist. And nowhere is the issue of climate change more poignant than in the high temperatures that we endured over the past month and that have been frightening the scientists and the impact that that's going to have on our oceans. Now, sea level rise sounds like such a benign thing. It sounds like the gentle increase when you're at the beach and the tide slowly creeps up on you. All of you here tonight will know that that's far from the truth. Some of the rise will be gentle... But the other impact will come by way of more frequent and potentially destructive storms. Our love affair with coastal living is at risk. As the threats become more apparent, there's growing interest in how we manage planning and adaptation in the face of these changes. How do we negotiate the conflicts of interest in how we adapt and hold back the tide? Should we hold back the tide? And if so, where and when is it appropriate? How are local councils responding? We know there's quite a few people tonight here from local government. Our guests tonight are Associate Professor Abbas El Zain from the School of Civil Engineering, University of Sydney, and Tiana O'Donnell from the Institute for Governance and Policy Analysis at the University of Canberra. They will answer some of the questions, share some of their work and insights, and then we will be over to you for more questions. Abbas al Zain will look at the complexities associated with rising sea levels and decision-making at the municipal level. Uh, his interests include soil contamination and soil transport problems, vulnerability and adaptation to climate change, as well as the broad links between technology, poverty and environmental degradation in the developing world. Tayana is a research fellow with the Institute for Governance and Policy Analysis at Canberra, as I said. She's practiced as a solicitor in litigation and in environment and planning law in New South Wales. And her interests are in legal geography, climate law, climate adaptation, theoretical conceptualisations of property and of place, and in the urban and legal geographies of cities in a changing climate. Tiana's discussion will explore the measures and address some of the risks involved in climate change and she'll look at the law and where it can be invoked to provide some remedies. So first of all, Abbas, we welcome you to the stage for your presentation. Thank you.
1: Thank you for uh, the introduction and thank you to the Sydney Environment Institute um, uh, for organising um, the event Um, What I'd like to do in the 25 minutes or so that are available to me is to try and give you a sense of where the complexity of problems to do with sea level rise comes from, um, and why issues of uh, values and valuation quickly come to the fore when you're dealing with issues of adaptation to climate change. Um, I'd like to uh, begin by acknowledging uh, the work of uh, my student, the contribution of my student's Uh, PhD, MPhil, and undergraduate fourth-year students who have been working uh, on problems to do with uh, sea level rise and adaptation to sea level rise for a few years. I won't be reporting any of these research projects specifically. However, my talk is informed by by some of these research projects, and I will be referring to some of the findings from these projects uh, 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 in in, in my talk. I would also like to acknowledge and thank the Shoalhaven City Council. I will be illustrating some of the points that um, I want to make uh, by reference to specific beaches in, in Shoalhaven. And we've worked with the Shoalhaven City Council for um, a number of years. There's some wonderful people in there doing great work. Uh, needless to say, almost needless to say, um, uh, all opinions expressed in the talk are, are mine, uh, and, and, and the Shoalhaven City Council might not share them, uh, or indeed my, my, my students or ex-students. Um, before I talk about um, uh, adaptation today, I just want to spend a couple of minutes reminding, uh, uh, reminding you of uh, two important facts um, about sea level rise. Um, we know that so far we've had about f- 15 to 20 centimeters uh, rise in sea level since the uh, pre-industrial age. Um, uh, scientists believe that acceleration of sea level rise started um, in the mi- sometimes in the 19th century Um, and has been accelerating since. The current rate, the current average rate of sea level rise uh, is about 3.3 millimetres per year, and the the rate itself is increasing. Um, The projection from the latest report of the International Panel on Climate Change, the 2013 report, um, obviously they depend on the different emission scenarios, but the projection for the business-as-usual scenario, I think it's called ICP 8.5 or something like that, in the IPCC report, for 2050 is around 50 centimetres with a certain uh, uh, range of of uncertainty. For 2100, uh, it's about 90 centimetres with an even wider range of um, uh, uh, uncertainty. Now, what does that mean? You might ask that uh, uh, 50 centimeters is, 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 is not a lot. So what if the sea has risen by uh, 50 centimeters? After all, if, if you're a surfer, uh, uh, you'd think that no wave uh, worthy of the name would be less than 4 meter high. Or, uh, and, and so what is 50 centimeters? Well, the short answer to it is that sea level rise comes with an increase in the intensity and frequency of extreme weather events. That's that's the sing- that's the shortest possible answer to the to the to the question. And I hope this figure uh, illustrates this. Let me see if I can use. Uh, yes, I can. Uh, if you look at, at the uh, right-hand side of the um, of the of the of the figure, um, this is a study that was done at 29 locations around Australia by CSIRO. Um, and if you look at the uh, under a 50-centimeter rise, so 2050, uh, under a uh, uh, business-as-usual scenario, if you look at the uh, medium uh, uh, blue, uh, bl- blue circles, what they're saying is that the frequency of extreme weather events, such as cyclones or storm surges, would be uh, multiplied by 1,000-fold. Uh, now, what this means is that an event that takes place today, uh, once every 100 years, would start taking place 10 times a year. If you look at the uh, thick uh, uh, b- blue, blue, blue circle here, which is somewhere in New South Wales, uh, then that event, which occurs once every 100 years, would start occurring once every few days. Now, obviously, that would make for a very different kind of weather patterns along our coastline than what we used to today. But the second fact that I want to highlight is even if we were today to uh, even if emissions were to peak today uh, under some fantastically optimistic scenario, were to peak today and decline pretty quickly over the next few years and decades, carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere will keep increasing for another 100 to 300 years. Uh, Temperatures, before stabilizing, uh, temperatures would do the same. Um, Now, with sea level rise, temperature would do the same with another lag relative to the uh, uh, concentrations by another 100 or 200 years. With sea level rise, that lag is much, much bigger. Uh, depending on whether we're talking about thermal expansion or melting of sea ice, then it will, sea, level, sea levels will keep rising for another few centuries and even millennia. Now, what this means is that regardless of what we do in terms of emissions, this is still very important. At this quote from Jonathan Gregory emphasized, the amount of rise will depend on future emissions. However, regardless of what we do, we are locked into sea uh, uh, level rise right through this millennium, very likely. That, 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 that's where we are. And, of course, it means that, for example, predictions, for the first time the IPCC report in 2013 made predictions up to 2300, which they hadn't done in previous reports. And uh, here uh, the, 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 the what, what what essentially it said is that under business as usual scenario uh, a likely it's likely that sea level rise would be around 2 to 3 meters uh, of 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 increase now again that would make for a very different kind of coastline to the one that we are used to today now let's come back to uh, new south wales um this is kalala beach in uh, in shoalhaven Jarvis bay for those of you who don't know that uh, that area about 3 hours south of uh, south of sydney um, we, we took those photos uh, a few days after a storm surge, after a storm event at, at Kalala Beach, hence uh, this beautifully colored and, in fact, beautifully textured uh, seaweed that had washed up uh, on the shore. And what you see here is one of the uh, uh, most important effects of sea level rise on, on our coastlines, which is the erosion... That is caused uh, to the dunes by storm surges, and that if we keep having those, you know, this frequency of storm surges uh, eventuate, that the increase in frequency of storm surges and intensity, then we're going to see more and more of this kind of erosion. And the problem with this erosion, of course, it means you're losing some of the dune, and it means that it could lead to a recession of the beach, but also to a weakening of the foundations of assets into and away from the beach. That that's, that's one of the most serious uh, uh, issues with sea level rise. Certainly uh, at a beach like uh, Kalala, Collingwood is another beach also around Jarvis Bay, which is seen as highly exposed to the effect of sea level rise. Uh, higher density uh, living in here compared to Kalala. Uh, and Mollymook Beach, these are the three beaches considered to be some of the most exposed in Shoalhaven. Now... Mollymook Beach is quite, as you can see, quite densely frequented. Um, most of the development in those beaches has occurred post-World War Two, as, as these aerial photos uh, would clearly show you. Now, uh, one of the um, things that, the easiest thing that you could do, and that councils around Australia for the last 10 or 15 years now have been doing, is to combine information from global circulation models, models that predict sea level rise, with Information about the local geomorphology of the beach and about the local dynamics of sediment transport at the beach to try and predict under different scenarios of sea level rise how much uh, those effects of inundation as a result of sea level rise, but also the weakening, the erosion of the dune and the weakening of the foundation would penetrate inland. And this is what these uh, uh, curves show you. I'm not sure how clear they are, uh, but they are four lines, and they correspond basically to the risk today, uh, then the risk in 2020, 2050, and 2100. And you could see there's a big chunk of coastline that under risk in, in, in this case. Uh, of course you could do more accurate modeling this is based on the brun rule which is uh, a, a simplified approach to do those things that was done by uh, uh, Umwelt, a report by uh, uh, an engineering consultant basically hired by uh, Shoalhaven City Council. Now, what can you do about this? Well, it doesn't take a lot to think that there's three things you can do about this. Um, uh, Any action you take will have to fall into one of these categories. One is you can protect the coastline, go the Dutch way. The Dutch have been building fortifications around Holland for the last 500 or 600 years. It worked well for them. Of course, Australia and Holland are very different countries in, in, in shape and size and density. And, of course, even the Dutch uh, have been having second thoughts about full protection for the last 10 or 15 years. But that's another story. Now, either you protect or if you can't protect by building seawalls, and I'll talk about protection in a minute, then the other option would be to say, well, look, I can't protect. The water will come in. There's going to be some weakening of the foundation. Let's see if I can change a little bit the way I do things and accommodate uh, uh, the water, try and uh, try and live with it. Or, alternatively, you might say, no, it's not possible to accommodate the water. Really, living here is not viable. And you could think of uh, uh, some form of relocation, either partial or total, stage relocation or not, and so on. Now, protection. This is um, from a report uh, uh, that was published by uh, an engineering consultant, again, that was hired by uh, the Shoalhaven City Council, um, and uh, which looked at a large number of options uh, about managing that hazard uh, for, for Monimook Beach. And I've just selected two, uh, two of these options just to illustrate my point. Um, and these are the options that provide complete protection to the beach for the next 50 years. So they would protect those assets that are at risk for the next 50 years, um, and you could, you, know, you could forget about it a little bit. Uh, it, it, that, that, that's the idea. Um, the cost of building those four seawalls along four segments of the beach would be about $32 million. Uh, Beach nourishment, uh, which is another option, which consists in re-nourishing the the dune, rather than not allowing it to recede by bringing sand from elsewhere and adding it uh, uh, to the dunes, um, would, um, uh, would cost about $55 million if you were to do it for the next 50 years or so. Now of course this is way beyond the capacity of uh, the Shorehaven City Council or probably any council given that this is only one beach among many that the council is responsible for. Um, and of course the, the 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 engineering report doesn't recommend this it recognized this and actually recommend other other options. But I just wanted to forget about Monimook for a moment and think of what it means if we were to apply this kind of protection strategy as a national strategy, even if the money was coming from the federal government. Well, I did a small calculation, and you find if uh, by the time you spend that kind of money on about 280 beaches, you will reach 1% of the national GDP, based on 2013, uh, Australia GDP of 1.56 trillion Bear in mind that there are about 10,500 beaches in Australia. This is just to say that full protection is not going to be a, a viable strategy. And you have to uh, uh, think of ways of accommodating the, uh, the, 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 water, the risk. Um, first thing you can do when you're thinking about accommodation is to look at how the land is used. Who uses what around, around, around the land? Um, and one thing you can do is to look at the, uh, uh, assets that are under threat if water were to come in, if those effects of weakening of foundation were were, were to happen, um, you could see that uh, this is under on one particular scenario of a 2050 storm. After uh, all, the uh, storm would have caused some previous storm would have caused some erosion to the uh, to the dune, and uh, what you find is that the cost uh, of for residential properties and and uh, some infrastructure is about 34 million dollars now. I can understand what $20.2 million means for private properties, because private properties are either actually or potentially in an exchange market. Uh, They are subject to supply and demand, and and we know the price means something to us. But what does it mean to say that, say, the roads, uh, uh, the cost of the road is $0.6 million, or uh, for the wastewater systems, is, uh, sorry, is is um, uh, uh, is 2.9 million dollars. Does it mean if we were given those 2 million dollars by somebody, we could solve the problem? Well, the answer is no. First, those infrastructure systems aren't on an exchange market. It's not that anybody is offering to sell them or that anybody wants to buy them. These those figures are about the replacement cost, but. What does it mean to replace them? If we're talking about repeated storm surges, are you prepared to pay this kind of money every time there's a storm surge? We saw what kind of frequency we might end up with. So really, those figures could end up being empty signifiers. We like to put monetary values on things, but they don't actually mean much. Um, And um, one better way of looking at this, perhaps, or at least slightly better way of looking at this, is to look at what it means to have an interruption of service. Uh, to, these, uh, uh, to these systems, uh, who gets affected? And we found uh, this is a study that uh, Fahim, my student, has done. Looked at the cascading effect uh, of, uh, of of interruption uh, to the services, and found there'd be about because th- that uh, wastewater system on, at Monimog Beach is connected to a bigger part of the system. It means any disruption to that service would cascade through that system and affect households away from Monimog Beach. So we found that about six thousand households would be affected. The road as well, Um, uh, we find that it's it's not a a local road. It's what is known technically as a collector road, which means it it carries quite a bit of traffic that is not directly related to Monimuk. Uh, This is the average daily traffic estimated on part of the road. It's about 10,000 cars passing in that road. There are serious consequences to disruption to those services. Now, Traditionally, the way um, uh, uh, we've dealt uh, with uh, with hazards to infrastructure system is to apply some kind of probabilistic risk assessment. Uh, and then you put it within some framework of benefit and cost, and you make a decision about how best to manage those risks. There's two reasons why it's quite difficult to do that in the context of sea level rise and climate change. The first one is... Uh, it is virtually impossible to come up with probabilities or probability distribution for the occurrence of an event related to climate change. This is because the chain of causality from emissions to the actual event happening at Mollymook or any other beach has a lot of uncertainty that prevents us from building uh, 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 probability distribution, rigorous probability distribution that would allow us to do this kind of quantification. The second reason why we can't apply conventional risk Uh, 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 risk assessment approaches is the escalating nature of the risk. Um, uh, If we take um, a a, a time horizon of 2050 or if we take a time horizon of 2100, we might come up with very different policy answers because the risk is increasing, which is not very common in, 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 in risk assessment. Um, The way uh, Shoalhaven City Council is dealing with this, as I understand it, is that uh, they're applying adaptive management. Uh, uh, Just I'm finishing uh, uh, with with Windsor at Monimook. I'm just using Monimook, by the way, and and Shoalhaven beaches for illustration purposes, not to make uh, particular statements about those beaches. Uh, they're using adaptive management, which means they've got uh, this is a particular approach, which is uh, adaptive pathways, which means you identify uh, 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 milestones. If they are reached, say, in terms of sea level rise or in terms of uh, the erosion nearing that infrastructure uh, component, you say, I will then activate a particular uh, adaptation option. This is a way of uh, a balancing between your need to act, your need to have a strategy, and the uncertainty that is there. So you need to have an adaptation strategy that is flexible enough to react to change in information. That, that, that's roughly what's, uh, uh, what's happening. This is infrastructure. What about private properties? Um, it's, um, it's inevitable. It's happening, uh, I think, probably all around Australia, it's fair to say, that when local councils publish um, information about the risk... Uh, uh, to particular properties or particular area, uh, as by way of disclosure and by way of managing uh, those risks, inevitably this tension is created uh, because the effect of publishing this information can have, a negative effect, uh, can have a negative effect on the value of those properties, can have an effect on the insurance premium. And there are you know, legitimate concerns by, uh, uh, by, by, by owners, um, and you could see some of the snippets here are from associations uh, expressing uh, those concerns. The danger here, of course, is that uh, this is something that has happened in New South Wales, happened in Queensland, it happened in other parts of the world, which is the combination of uh, demographic pressure and economic growth with the increase in prices of properties uh, along the coastal uh, areas will create a political dynamic or political momentum for, for, for pushing for protection, which Cancers might not be able to resist, and the problem with that is that it might create this momentum that would lead to maladaptation, because it means it would eliminate other options, such as relocation or accommodation, that might turn out to be much better option down the track. Uh, by the time we get to that stage, it might become too difficult to apply those to apply those options. Um, the other interesting thing about these conflicts between. Um, uh, uh, the various conflicts that occur around adaptation to sea level rise uh, is the fact that science becomes contested. Uh, that that's, happens quite often and you could see those two examples. In the first one is the science of the choice of sea level rise for 2100. This is typically gets, gets contested because uh, it's obviously within the remit of planning. At the same time, the range of uncertainty uh, for 2100 is wider, so it gives more scope for, uh, uh, for for contestation. We're not talking here about climate denial, by the way. We're talking about uh, 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 arguing with, with the meaning of the impacts. This is a very different thing. Um, uh, and the second is interesting, because this is not about contesting what's going to happen in 2100, it's about contesting the interpretation of science as to whether erosion is happening now as a result of sea level rise. Um, and one thing is, with, um, uh, there's a kind of problems called in, in, in complex system science called... Um, uh, wicked problems, wicked uh, not as in evil or not as in some teenagers might say awesome uh, wicked as in devilishly difficult and the distinction between wicked problems and tame problems is not about complexity because both kinds of problems are complex uh, there is, wicked problems are problems whose definition is contested uh, there's no universal agreement about what the problem is let alone what the solution might be um, the solution, one solution you might come up with for uh, wicked problems, might lead to unforeseen consequences and might uh, uh, might create other problems. There are no win-win uh, uh, solutions. There's usually a lot of uncertainty in uh, in wicked problems. Um, wicked problems. Um, the reason why wicked problems are uh, it's useful to think into, of, of sea level rise in terms of wicked problems is is, is, is two or three reasons the first one is that um, it's a good starting point to recognize that a problem is wicked I know it sounds it sounds it sounds obvious uh, but actually it's not that uh, it's not that automatic um, I think we are steeped in a in a, in a, in a in a, in, a technic- in technological rationality which approaches problems in a particular way uh, with the aim of solving them shelving them and then moving on wicked problems cannot be dealt with in this way we have to be resigned to uh, not solving wicked problems but uh, managing them over uh, over a long period of time the second point about wicked problem that i think is relevant to sea level rise is that wicked problems raise questions about the institutions managing those problems. And by institution here, I mean the word institution in the widest possible sense of the word. Not about a particular institution, but about the whole set of rules and regulations and governance structure um, and different layers of government that determine how we interact with each other and how we interact with with the environment. Um, And wicked problem, because of the long-term nature of wicked problem, inevitably raise question about whether we have the right institutions, whether we have the right institutional arrangement to manage uh, those problems. There's a great example, this paper by Lonsdale um, in London. What they did is um, they brought a set of uh, policy and decision makers uh, uh, onto, into a round table. they interviewed them first and then organised a day where they brought them in. And all those decision and policy makers are concerned with the Thames River, with the management of the Thames River. And they put on the table a scenario which had been unexpected by these policymakers, uh, I think it involved the uh, uh, complete breakdown of the Arctic shelf or the Antarctic shelf—I can't remember—which leads basically to an increase in sea level rise of five metres over 100 years, which would reflect into uh, uh, flooding in the Thames River. So they put this uh, scenario on the table for uh, 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 for these um, uh, uh, policymakers. And they tried to see through discussions whether what would be the policy response in this case. And what they found is that there's a very good chance, uh, given the lack of consensus, that the policy response whether well, the response would be policy paralysis. Um, so these are serious questions about whether we have the right institutions to deal uh, over the next century or so with with this with these kind of problem. The third um, uh, 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 the third aspect of of wicked problems that that is, that is important for sea level rise is that because there are no win win. Uh, Solution to sea level rise. Inevitably, there's always going, whichever whichever aspect of sea level rise we're dealing with, uh, there's always going to be two underlying questions that we have to that we have to look at. Uh, Whether it's explicit or not, um, it's almost always there. The first one is what is it that we value about the beach? Who values what uh, about the beach and about the coast? But also values in another sense, in the sense of what kind of value system we would bring to our decision making. This is about whether we use a participatory approach, a democratic approach, a central planning uh, approach, and so on. And there was a seminal paper in in 2010 by O'Brien and Wolfe, which called for a value-based approach to to adaptation to sea level. And this has, I think, generated a number of very interesting studies uh, that are essentially ethnographies of the way people interact with the coast, of how the coast and the beach are Uh, are are inscribed in in people's lives. Um, And it led also to a mapping of what does the beach mean uh, to to, to different people. Of course, that doesn't answer the question uh, how how we should make those decisions. And the challenge here is to be able to incorporate this understanding of the values into a system, uh, into some adaptive pathways that would allow us to have a coherent uh, answer, uh, rather than a patchwork adaptation answer, that's coming. People coming with different values in different places. Uh, there was an interesting, another interesting paper by uh, Barnett at uh, Isle where they propose um, uh, 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 an adaptation pathway with um, uh, where the uh, milestone that would make you go from one adaptation course to another adaptation course are not sea level rise uh, uh, values, which are abstract to people living there, uh, living, uh, living at a particular beach. They've done this study, by the way, in this case at Lake Entrance in, in, in Victoria, but to use socially salient impact of sea level rise. And they found that they could get more consensus in a community if what they worked on are impacts that are socially salient. If there's a flood, for example, that lasts for five days, then this is the signal that we should now move to a different strategy of management, this sort of things. Of course, it still raises quite a lot of questions about how you reconcile this with a broader strategy, a high scale strategy by state governments and so on. There's no easy answers. Now, I couldn't help, and I'm coming to the end of, of, of my talk, I couldn't help, um, um, th- while, while reading about this and while preparing for my talk, I couldn't help seeing um, a, 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 a rather tragic historical irony um, in, in the way uh, the ocean is, is now uh, laying claim uh, to land that we've always assumed was, was ours, that we've always took for granted um and you know uh, according to question our ownership undermining our ownership of the land um uh, and asking us to to change the way we do things to 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 allow for the water to come in um it's it, there's something of a not a uh, happening here a faint hint i admit of a, of a terranalius terranalius is the concept uh, that the british brought uh, to this land uh, whereby um uh, uh, the because the uh, indigenous australians did not have a uh, a written code of property allocation, therefore the land did not belong to anyone and the white settlers could take it. Um, It's not uh, beyond a stretch of imagination to think that an observer uh, uh, looking at, in 200 years from now, looking at what Sea level rise will have done to, will have, will have transformed our coastline. Uh, we'll see it on the, same scala- on the same scale as white settlement, or uh, perhaps the post war post World War II economic and population growth on, 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 our, on our coast. But I want to finish on a on a on a uh, on a cheerier note. Um, This is an exercise that I give to my students in in a third year uh, course on sustainable systems engineering toward the end of the course. And the idea is uh, it's not so much to take the scenario uh, uh, too seriously. The idea is to uh, get them to, to have bolder thinking about engineering, to try and think a little bit outside the box. And some of the students who uh, go on and do uh, uh, finally thesis on topics to do with sea level rights, I've had those uh, pairs of students doing very interesting work, uh, could come up with, with interesting ideas and, and, and pursue them. But the reason why I'm showing this is not uh, to to take that scenario uh, too seriously. Um, It's to emphasize how important it is uh, to think about the future beyond the next 20 or 30 or even 50 years. You might ask, why would we want to think about the future beyond 50 years when there's so much uncertainty? Well, one way of answering this is to ask you to look at the dysfunctionalities in our city today. For all the wonderful, I love Sydney, but think about all the cities you've been to and think about some of the dysfunctionalities that are there. How many of these dysfunctionalities have been caused, at least in large part, by decisions that were made 75 or 80, or 100 years ago. I think you would find that quite a few numbers of those have been the case. But um, when we talk about thinking about the future, there's a wonderful quote from O'Brien, and this is my last slide. Um, it's not about social engineering or, or designing the future, or even specifying the future. It's really about uh, bequeathing for our children the kind of future uh, that we would want to live in, rather than stumbling into the future, just uh, looking only to the next 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 years. And I think only by thinking about the future in those terms that we can take into account big questions about how we're going to accommodate demographic and economic growth over the next few decades while we have a coastline that is increasingly hostile. And I think this is where, in addition to the work uh, of, the, of the local, council, local councils and, and, and local organisations, leadership by the state government and by the federal government is absolutely essential. Thank you. Just some, of the, some of the thoughts uh, that, I've, that, I've, that I've given here are, in the, are going to be in a, in a forthcoming paper. And the rest of a few things of of the <coughs>
0: wow, that was really interesting, Abbas. Thank you very much. And loads of questions, I'm sure everyone's thinking about it. Now, one of the um, things that you finished off was on conflicts, and uh, that's a legal issue. So, Tayana.
2: <laughs> How's that? Excellent. I'm much shorter. Okay. Over the next 20 minutes or so that I'll be talking, I'd like for you to imagine yourself as a homeowner, think of yourself as living on the beach, and the threat of inundation is imminent. So, the title of my talk today is Coast Climate and Litigation, and I'll be talking to three New South Wales case studies, including the social aspects and the legal aspects of climate adaptation. The three case studies localities are Lake Macquarie, Port Stephens and Byron Bay, all on the north coast, north of Sydney in New South Wales. I've undertaken research on each, including in-depth field work, interviews with stakeholders in Lake Macquarie and in Port Stephens. Towards the end of my talk, I am going to make some broad observations on the stage two New South Wales law reforms, on which public submissions closed quite recently. We've gone too far ahead. So, Australians have an ongoing love affair with living on the coast, and this is pretty well known. Data from the ABS in 2001 tells us that over 85% of the Australian population reside in the coastal zone, and most of that population is located on the New South Wales, South East Queensland um, coast. Along with population pressures that will continue to increase in the future come other pressures. Growth in demand for services and infrastructure, growth in tourism and growth in recreational use. All of these are on a highly variable and highly vulnerable place being the coast and this will continue to increase over time. Coastal hazards, we know them quite well. We've been living with them for a number of years and like these depicted here on the New South Wales coast and on the Gold Coast, they are something that we are very familiar with and these too will increase in severity and frequency over time. Events such as coastal storms, erosion, king tide events and east coast low storms resulting in localised flooding are all climate variability factors that can and have resulted in property and beach damage. Of course, these will increase under projected climate change impacts. So as a result of these hazards and IPCC4 data, which was released in 2007, particularly with respect to future sea level rise projections, in 2009, the Commonwealth Government tasked the House of Representatives Standing Committee to inquire into and report on climate change and environmental pressures experienced by coastal areas, particularly in the context of population growth. This report, known as the George Report, made 47 recommendations and highlighted the cultural, social, environmental and economic values of the coast, as well as the challenges facing it in a changing climate. 2009, as many of you probably know, was a very interesting year on the policy front. Uh, in New South Wales, we saw the New South Wales Silver Rise Policy Statement come into force, And despite being repealed in 2012, whilst it existed, it set planning benchmarks for local councils at a 40 centimetre rise by 2050 and a 90 centimetre sea level rise by 2100. In addition to this, spatial analysis carried out at the federal government level in detailed 2008 costs of damage to or loss of coastal residential property under a 1.1 metre sea level rise scenario the same measure adopted by IPCC4 in 2007 properties in new south wales at risk included 40,800 to 62,400 residential properties replacement costs of these properties were valued between 12.4 billion and 18.7 billion as at 2008 so that's 8 years ago and development hasn't stopped and property prices have been increasing so the risks are significant So it was against this backdrop that I commenced my PhD research in 2009. I use Lake Macquarie and Port Stephens as my two case study areas. Both are located approximately two hours north of Sydney and I chose them for a number of reasons but primarily because of their proximity to each other. They're quite similar risk with respect to residential housing. Port Stephens has a lower number of houses at risk but they are at higher risk because they are situated on what's called soft shorelines, so sandy bays between the sandy areas between the bay and a wetland system behind them. And Lake Macquarie and Port Stevens had very, very different policy approaches to sea level rise and climate change in 2009 2010. So in my PhD I undertook a detailed policy analysis of each uh, council and I interviewed residents, employees of council, Elected body, the elected council laws of each council, state government, and the insurance sector, and I had a number of questions, but the ones I'll, I'll talk about briefly here tonight um, included the perception of the role of law for climate adaptation, how local government made decisions in the context of sea level rise, and whether a perception that proper, whether there was a perception that property value would influence adaptation. And particularly on the third question, some highlights for me were the way people thought about property. And by people, I mean all of my respondents, not just the residents who owned those properties. I went into the PhD thinking that they were going to talk to me about financial value and they didn't really mention that at all um, in any of the interviews. They spoke about having lived there for 20 or 30 years, having an attachment to their home because of the memories they'd created there, having an attachment to the locality, even in, for people who had just moved into a new home, a newly approved home on the beach, um, even those people had an attachment to the locality and the community that they had within within those areas. In addition, there were, I'd asked questions about um, the role of law for climate adaptation and there was a lot, of, um, a lot of significant data around local knowledge and what local knowledge of climate meant in these communities. And I raise it now because the New South Wales coastal law reforms, at least the draft of them at the moment, stage two, makes reference to engaging more with local knowledge. And local knowledge can be a double-edged sword. There are people in communities who are receptive and responsive and engaged particularly on climate science issues, and there are others who believe that their knowledge of their community is the be-all and end-all, and it doesn't matter what any expert says to them. And there were a number of people that I interviewed who said to me, I don't care what climate scientists say, I don't believe in climate science at all, I've lived here for 50 years, and this beach always moves and it's a normal thing and we shouldn't worry about it. Uh, Someone else drew um, an excellent graph of the tectonic plates and explained to me, this was a retired engineer, so a highly um, well-educated, articulate person, explained to me that the tectonic plates were the reasons why there were variations in sea level, had nothing to do with climate change, was an ordinary thing, they'd lived there for a long time as well and they were going to believe their interpretation of their local knowledge over any expert that would come in and talk to them. So it's really difficult for local councils on the ground, engaging with their communities, to try and engage everybody at the same level. And here's a lovely, because I'm a geographer as well as a lawyer. We have a lovely map of my um, my two case study areas. Now, we've, we've heard from a bus and, and we know that there are long-term hazards associated with sea level rise, but it's also important to consider that coastal hazards are here and now, um, the risks are here and now, and this photo here was taken two years ago in Port Stevens. This is a suburb called Corlette, it's um, a row of houses here facing the bay uh, it's a soft shore line. There's about 20 houses here. Once upon a time, they were fishing shacks, and over the last 20 or 30 years, they've slowly been taken down and quite large mansions have been put in their place. And directly behind that is a small road and an extensive wetland and co- protected koala habitat. This is An ordinary king tide, there's nothing special about it. It happens twice a year um, along the coast. This sort of thing happens twice a year. It's um, very exciting, particularly for children when it happens because the water comes right up to to the doorstep. Ordinarily, the beach is about 10 metres out. So there'll be the grass and then there's sand and the tide ebbs and flows, but it never comes over the grass except when there's a king tide. It's important... Images like this are important because they bring home the fact that there are going to be risks to property now, irrespective of what happens with sea level rise. Sea level rise and climate change just makes the urgency of proper risk assessment all that more important. So, what of private property, then? Private property rights are deeply entrenched in our legal system and in our culture here in Australia and in other places around the world. Areas on the coast remain open to development or redevelopment. A number of properties have existing use rights, which means that they can change their house but remain there as residents. And this highlights a number of tensions between preserving the public land namely the beach, and protecting those private property rights under law. Uh, This was exacerbated as well in my my two case studies, Lake Macquarie and Port Stephens, um, where you had a a policy situation of council employees, so planners, engineers, managers um, of a variety of backgrounds, all advancing a scientifically sound and a risk-adverse approach to approving development, um, in Lake Macquarie, they had a very harmonious relationship with council laws and they achieved a great deal of flood management and risk management approaches there. Um, there was some backlash from the community, but on the whole they've achieved quite a robust policy system to deal with flooding risk in Lake Macquarie. Um, Port Stephens, even in 2012 as I was wrapping up my fieldwork, was... Um, Still, there were still issues between employees who were trying to do the same thing and council laws who were openly pro development, openly anti climate change. There was a community that was largely retirees um, who also didn't really believe in climate change, and even if they did, it was beyond their life cycle, so they didn't really care. Um, and planners, engineers would try. Um, repeatedly to put in place conditions on development approvals to say, this: yes, you can rebuild your house, but you need to raise your floor level by, let's say, half a metre or a metre in the event of future flooding, and the owner of that property would request that councillors call up that legislation, which means they make a decision again, and that decision would be overridden. So it didn't matter what employees did. If it was called up, then it usually went ahead in Port Stephens. And it created a lot of um, antagonism in that council in terms of future planning. And um, here's a few quotes here. Um, A lot of them are good. Important for for this talk, I think, is the one about um, expensive properties being quite resilient to flood. I think... um, I think that there's a lot of... Certainly anecdotally, a lot of rhetoric around that. You know, coastal property owners are rich, their properties are worth millions of dollars, they can cope with it. Um, but it's not always the case. They, those might be the properties you hear about in the news because they've got the money to litigate. Um, but there are a number of people all along the coast, not just in New South Wales, but around Australia, who don't have the means to litigate, um, whose home, whose coastal property is their primary asset. They may have lived there all their life. And this was another significant theme that came out of my PhD research. Um, employees of council, in particular, of both councils, were concerned about what one of them called a moral obligation to the everyday mum and dad to help them manage the risk to their property, knowing what they knew about risks of flooding, knowing what they knew about longer term projections of sea level rise. And in Lake Macquarie, it is a diverse social and economic demographic. Port Stephens, yeah, sure, most of the people around the bay there who own properties are quite wealthy. They're retired. They've got a house in Sydney, and that's their second home up there in the bay. But Lake Macquarie is quite different. There are some wealthy property developers there who have some political power and loud voices, but there are also a lot of people who are very poor. Not everyone is a wealthy property owner and able to cope on their own. My third case study, Byron Bay, poor Byron Shire Council, they get talked about all the time because they're so interesting and so um, different to what most councils have done. And of course, they've been um, the subject of quite a number of, no doubt, expensive litigation proceedings. And they have wealthy property owners who can afford to do that. And the Vaughan's in Byron are a perfect example of, of this. So this image here is of, not of the Vaughan property, but a property two doors down um, after a storm in May 2009. There was significant damage done to Boulondrill Beach in Byron Bay after that storm. It was at East Coast Low combined with a king tide event. So we had big waves and a big storm, big angry storm cause a lot of damage. So just to situate um, this piece of litigation that I'm about to talk about, the Vaughns in 2009 um, lodged proceedings in the Land and Environment Court after this storm. And for a bit of context, if anyone doesn't know the history in Byron Bay, um, they have had a a policy of planned retreat since the mid-1970s Another big storm came through then, wiped out a township called Sheltering Palms and so the council adopted a policy of plan retreat that was subject to um, being enforced when certain triggers are met and that applies, or applied, to Belongel Spit. Fast forward to 2001, the council issues itself a development um, consent to construct a sandbag wall on Belongel Beach uh, with the purpose of protecting the public beach but, and public access to the beach, but also with a subsidiary effect of protecting private properties along the beach as well. So they build the sandbag wall. It sits there for about eight years, and then in 2009, this big storm comes along, and the waves overtop this sandbag wall that's about two and a half metres high, and essentially rip it out, and with it, rip out about four or five metres of the Vaughan's private tidal, and damaged, damaged the beach as well, damaged the public access way. It caused a significant amount of damage. So the Vaughan's attempt to install temporary protection works immediately. Um, they hire some engineers to bring some big concrete boulders down the public street and try to put them on the beach. And the council sends someone out and says, no, you can't do that. We're getting an injunction in the court, so they, off they go to court get the injunction, it's granted um, on the basis that placing concrete structures on the beach would cause further or potentially cause further erosion down the beach. Um, So the injunction's granted, they can't place the concrete boulders on the beach and proceedings commence on the construction of this development consent that the council issued to itself in 2001. And particularly, the the questions before the court were, was the consent validly issued And is there an obligation under the consent to repair on the council to repair and maintain this sandbag wall? And if so, did they do that properly? And so litigation went on for about two weeks. Um, The the case eventually settled in February 2010 in favour of the Vaughns. That is, the council said, yes, we had an obligation to maintain and repair it and we're going to put it back in place and put some sand in and do all these, these things to fix this sandbag wall. Expensive litigation um, that hasn't ended. So just recently, um, and, and last year, there's been ongoing debate and discussion in Byron Council about the proposal to build a rock wall joining a number of small little rock areas across along the beach into one big wall that will serve to protect both the beach, it's argued, and the sand dunes between the beach and these private properties... The community up there is very, very engaged and outraged by this proposal because it completely goes against the policy of planned retreat. Um, They don't want their taxpayer, their their rates to be paying for protection of these few private property owners. They don't think it's going to really protect the beach. There's been some very heated um, discussions at council chambers with members of the community, and, of course, the homeowners there are quite angry too. They've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars helping council protect their properties, going through expensive litigation to continue to maintain that. They're going to help fund this wall, you know, costing them $100,000 each, purportedly, um, and they want their existing youth rights protected under law. And so Byron Council is, um, is in a really tough... Position. It's um it's been in a tough position for a very long time, and it will continue to be in a tough position. And and it begs the question. We we know um, as scientists broadly we know that there are options: protect, accommodate, retreat. But actually implementing them day to day at the coalface, with which is what local councils are doing, coastal councils are doing, is very very difficult. So what about the law, then? What of liability? So there are two main circumstances liability can arise for decisions made um, by local councils. You can, um, a development application decision can be challenged, and councils can be sued for negligence. Now, whether a local planning authority rejects, approves, or approves with conditions a development application, it can be subject to legal proceedings, relevant jurisdiction is the Land and Environment Court of New South Wales and it's usually an administrative review on the merits of the application or an administrative review on judicial grounds known as judicial review. In merits review the court may reconsider the evidence and provide a new decision on the DA, the development application. Um, This can sometimes have a greater chance of success so it's often likely to be the first legal course pursued but there are issues with standing. It can only be launched by third parties, so a neighbour or community or conservation groups will launch these proceedings. A ministry of repeals on judicial grounds, the courts consider only the procedural aspects of the decision and whether the decision-maker acted within their scope of their authority. For planning authorities, it still is very important to ensure that decisions are reasonable, that appropriate decision-making procedures are followed and that all relevant considerations are taken into account. This includes information on sea level rise. Which measure of sea level rise you use is still open to debate, and this is the problem. This is the big elephant in the room. To support this, access to best available evidence is important. The courts are mindful of the capabilities of some councils. Some councils are very, very rich. Others are very, very poor. There are a number of competing interests um, and demands on local council finances and time. And the courts are aware of that. That said, it's still important to follow those procedures when you're making decisions. With respect to negligence, and particularly in the context of this talk, with respect to future hazards, uh, a number of more than a dozen local councils that I've spoken to over the years um, expressed to me their fear that um, if a property is damaged as a result of a climate change-related hazard, uh, the owner may seek to sue for allowing the de- for, sue the council for allowing the development, even if the development was allowed 20 years ago or longer. Um, Of course, in order to claim, there must exist a duty of care, a breach of the duty, and that the breach both caused the damage and that the damage was not too remote. And so there are some questions there, and um, Justine Bell is a really good resource on this. There are some questions there around exactly whether negligence will be made out and in what circumstances. And it's really important for local councils to invest some time um, and money, if they have it, into seeking specific legal advice. Um, another question that's come up in in my uh, research over the years has been the good faith provisions under the Local Government Act, um, particularly Section 733, Subsection 3, sub, Subsection 5F, which specifically refers to sea level rise risk. Is sea level rise risk protected by the good faith provision? That particular subsection says yes, it is, but it still should be treated with caution. There's still the requirements for decision-makers to take into account all of the relevant considerations. So just um, briefly, because I'm mindful of the time, the New South Wales Coastal Reforms Package, Stage 2, includes three key provisions. Draft Coastal Management Bill... Coastal Management Manual, and a new SEP, State Environment Planning Policy. Um, The actual drafting of the SEP hasn't been released as yet, but the explanation of intended effect is available. And um, and all all three documents taken together are quite a a, um, detailed piece of work. And it's important to note that not everything has even been released as yet. So there's still more detail around the actual drafting of the SEP, more detail around the financial assistance available to councils in enacting coastal management, all to become available for review. However, highlights of the changes... Um, that Stage 2 reforms promote include, um, importantly, the consolidation of land use planning in a coastal context into the one SEP. So instead of looking at three different SEPs, it will all be in the one place. There's been a, an explicit move to focus on land use planning. There's an express reference in the draft bill to consider coastal development in a manner consistent with the principles of ecologically sustainable development Um, There is a specific mention and reference that there would be a better balance between protection methods for property and the longer-term sustainability of the coast, including its ecology, which is really critical because we think and talk about the coast in terms of property rights and public access to the beach and it's human-focused, but there's also a really important element of, of the ecological systems on the coast, important for tourism, important for industry and important for infrastructure and a detailed coastal manual to guide decision-making. So having having reviewed um, some of this, what struck me back in... It's been a long time since I've practised law, or it feels like a long time, but with um, that frame of thinking, it struck me that Division 4 of the draft bill, particularly Section 22, appears to create an obligation on councils to give effect... Well, it says councils will give effect um, to coastal management plans... And it could be, whether it was intentional or not, it could be um, that this would effectively create a statutory obligations on councils to do so, which would mean that every council would be required to have appropriate coastal management plans in place. Now that's, from a social point of view, that's probably a good thing. Um, it might promote consistency, But from a legal point of view, it will also or potentially also give rise to potential enforcement proceedings if that's the case. So an owner could come and argue that they have actionable rights um, because of that statutory, the creation of that statutory obligation. We'll see. Without the actual drafting of all documents, it's really difficult to be able to say whether the state government intended to do that or not um, and what the effect of that will be but um, certainly something to to keep in mind. Um, just finally, the other, what I thought was two main points that I thought was really um, good and positive about the Stage 2 reforms was the development of four coastal management areas to be mapped by the state government. The maps will be updated once every 10 years. And what this does is, instead of creating a whole New South Wales coast, it creates regions... And integrated planning, which is what this reform package is trying to do, is really effective at a regional scale. But there's no specific of rights guideline, and it's incredible um, that they still have an included one, in my view. Um, whether they will in the actual SEP, it will be arranged to be seen, but um, it's not looking like they're actually going to specify one. And it's curious as to why they're not doing that. So going back to the original scenario, and I'm going to do something that Abbas does with his students. Yeah, it's quite interesting. You're the homeowner. There's future sea level rise risk. It's your property. You're the everyday mum and dad. You're living on the beach. And I want you to ask yourself this question. What does a changing climate mean for your property and for your life, now and into the future? And I'm going to leave it there. Thank you.
0: More complex than I certainly thought. So thank you very much, Tiana. That was really interesting as well. So audience, what are your questions here? And who? And also could I ask Tiana and Abbas to come to the... Um, to the panel. <laughs> so, have we got a beginning question? There's one there. Hi, um, on the south coast examples, you're... Sorry, we've got a microphone.
3: Hi, everybody.
1: In the south coast examples, were the Aboriginal communities involved in any of that did, that you know of? Was who involved? Aboriginal in the... communities. Uh, um, not as far as I know. Uh, there's been other studies that have come across, um, particularly in North Queensland, uh, very interesting studies that were done about uh, basically ethnographies amongst indigenous community in, in far North Queensland, specifically around the issue of sea level rise. And I don't think this is the, uh, uh, the context for it, but I'd be happy to. Uh, it's highly recommended. Some of the best papers that came out of uh, value-based approaches looking at what values are involved in, in, in sea level rise, are, have been done amongst... Uh, another great paper is amongst the indigenous population of Canada uh, because of the ice recession. There's been some great work there as well.
0: Another question at the front.
4: So naive question, really. Is that working? working? Yeah. Yes. Naive question. It's just that, that uh, thinking in a kind of very broad sense, not specifically about this scenario. I mean, two things strike me as extremely wicked. (laughs) One is you're you're called on in both scenarios for long-term thinking. Um, I mean, we have in this country, if we're lucky, our parliaments last for two years, or maybe three. Long-term planning could not be further away from the possibility of of planning in this country. I mean, it it really seems as though for long-term planning, you would have to completely revolutionise the governments and political systems. And I presume that that also applies to some extent at the local level, though I'd be interested to hear that. The, The second question is just the question of the contest that must inevitably arise between um, the private and the public in this realm. I mean, you, you were talking mainly about litigation, but there's also this question about the people who say, I am entitled to protect my property. I'm wealthy. I'm going to put in the following things. I don't give stuff about what other people think on the beach. I'm entitled to my property. Presumably, that's another kind of litigation issue that could really... Well, it's, it's, it, it may not even register yet, but when people are desperate enough and when people are angry enough and they're powerful enough, you could, you could certainly get into a very, very difficult social situation.
2: So who's going to take that one? <laughs> or both? Um... Yes, I would agree with your second point. And... Is this working? Yes. Um, and those tensions have and do occur. So the Stage 1 coastal law reforms try to deal with that um, in allowing homeowners to place temporary protection works in front of their property when there's an extreme event. There's a number of criteria that have to be met. Um, certain materials can be used, uh, certain placement of those materials, so only on their property, not on the public... Beach, um, they have to apply to council for approval if those works are going to be long-term, um, and penalties apply if they if those things are contravened. So there are attempts in these new reforms to try and balance those public-private interests, and and that really feeds into your first question about long-term planning. Um, planning in itself is a wicked problem, I think. Um, and, and certainly strategic planning, you know, looking at 20-, 30-year time horizons. Um, when and you've got governments, you know, local councils, elections are every five to six years, um, state governments usually every three to five years, depending, and the federal government we can't even um, think about, really, at the moment, <laughs> um, particularly with planning. But there are um, measures in place that's Strategic plan is particularly utilised to try and embed ways of planning at least to a 20 to 30 year time horizon. 2100 is a long time for anyone and it's quite difficult to plan to that because we can't foresee everything. Um, even just thinking about technological advances between now and 2050 will change how we live in cities and and our regions. Um, But strategic planning and and looking at the New South Wales coastal law reforms, there really is a concerted effort there to embed principles like ecologically sustainable development. So balancing private property interests with the ecology of the coast, for example, and with the public benefit of the coast there, um, ensuring that you have an integrated planning model Um, at a regional level which means that decisions can be well informed, made with local communities and relevant to the geography and topography of those places as opposed to a silverised policy that says by 2100 90 centimetres and property past this line is going to be affected and just drawing that line down the New South Wales coast which isn't always very effective Um, but yeah, difficult, difficult problem. Abbas, did you want to add to that? Yes, very
1: quickly I think, just one thing with the public-private, um, I noticed the last um, five or six years uh, since the change of government uh, from, uh, I think, in 2011, I can't remember when, the change of uh, New South Wales government, <clears throat> where the previous benchmarks for sea level rise uh, were removed by the, uh, the Bayard government. I think there's been a thirst uh, for uh, guidance and for clarity um, uh, on the part of local councils, that—that's that, my understanding. The limited uh, 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 interaction that I've had with local councils seems to imply, and it seems to me that that's sort of the virtues of the of the reform. That it does seem—I mean, my non-expert reading of the of the of the of the, the law, very non-legal reading of the law—it seems to give, as you said, this, this balance, and at least it gives that clarity. And it seems to me it might prevent some of those litigations. I mean, if, if the councils were operating, I'm not sure. Is it operating? The intention. Okay, yeah, okay. That's all I would
0: Another question down there.
3: Uh, thanks for that. That was really interesting. I'm just sort of wondering how closely you've been watching what's going on at Lake Macquarie since 2009-2010 because I think just last week Council unanimously approved a local adaptation plan for a couple of suburbs. It was... They, ever since sort of that 2010 when you were up there, the flood study said local adaptation planning. they have just done their first one for a suburb and the community presented that plan to council. Council has unanimously accepted it. And it is a 100-year plan. It's a 100-year plan for that suburb, for that community. So it was an example of a community looking forward. Uh, it wasn't easy, but they stretched themselves 100 years. And they have a plan that they're comfortable with, that this is how we are going to manage this issue in our our place. Council's happy, community's comfortable, and it seems to have been a a story of where you can do this, I guess.
2: Yeah, it's incredible. Um, I haven't read it, but I have been watching with interest um, what happens in Lake Macquarie, and it it really is an incredible jurisdiction um, and should be showcased as a model for how to, to do this. You know, they're a big council. Yes, they're well-resourced, but they're still a very big council. They have a number of competing demands. Not all of their um, constituents are located in low-lying at-risk areas, and um, and yet they still manage to, to achieve um, really great things. Now... Sometimes they, you know, sometimes there'll be a climate change sustainability officer there and then his name will change to just sustainability officer and sometimes I'll be talking about sea level rise and other times I'll change that and talk about flood but the net effect and the end result is the same Um, and that's what's important really when you're looking at longer term horizons.
0: Oh, lots of questions. (laughs) I think you were first um, down there. (laughs) It's like an
2: auction.
5: (laughs) Thanks very much. Um, My question, it kind of relates to both of you and it relates to the Associate Professor um, raised floating communities as an accommodation um, measure to climate change adaptation. Um, So this has started to emerge, I believe, in places like the Netherlands and floating houses and other places such as uh, London, New Orleans and Lake Macquarie, I believe, is also included as an option under their DA assessment process. But some of the issues that um, come up with this um, relate to land tenure or I would, or water tenure, I guess, lagoons, estuaries, um, and the ocean. So just wanted to say, ask, how can these be reconciled? And that's why I might need a lawyer's response here. Um, and I guess this also comes up with conflicts, uh, particularly around common pool resources, which also relates to Ostrom as another of her theoretical models. But, um, yes, so... I think
1: he. I don't know if I'm hard of hearing, by the way. I don't know if I understood the question correctly, but if I understand correctly, it's um, about how we reconcile uh, impact on the on the ecosystems at the beaches. Is that right? Or no, sorry.
0: So it sounds—it sounds like it's a property rights um, question to me. Maybe one for Tayana because it's about—you know—how do you reconcile the, the difference between water rights instead of land rights? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
2: That's a great question. <laughs> it is, isn't it? <laughs> um, I don't have a clear-cut answer, but I would love to know. In fact, I'm already theorising now about how you could create tenure on water. Um, can you create tenure on water? I don't know that you can. What a great question. Um, it's, uh, what about if you, um, you know, if people expect to anchor it
0: in that particular spot and we already have a model for that
2: with do. marinas, don't we? We but do, if, yeah. If you're anchoring in a spot, then, yes, you'd be subject to the laws that, um, that govern maritime law. But, yeah, how do, you, how do you retreat on the ocean in a lake? in the coastal zone. That's a really good question. I don't have an answer, but, um, but I love the question.
0: Thank yes. you. There's another question down there somewhere. Yes? Oh, here first. Sorry.
3: Sorry. Um, question for Tiana. So you mentioned a couple of, of legal recourses in terms of um, a DA approval challenge or negligence on behalf of council. Can you give us an idea of how often those recourses um, are taken up in Australia? Um, you mentioned that councils were concerned about it, but, but has that actually gone through in the past? and Particularly in relation to some of the international movements in, in continental Europe and over in, in uh, New Zealand which have held municipal authorities accountable for uh, uh, well a failure to adapt to climate change.
2: Yes, great question. Um, litigation on a failure to adapt to climate change is relatively new here in Australia. Um, there aren't to my knowledge, any cases as yet that ask that specific question. Um, And I think that's because litigation arises in very narrow sets of circumstances. So there'll be litigation on whether a... um, And there has been litigation um, in New South Wales on whether a decision-maker properly took account of climate change impacts, as in flooding, um, and it was held that they didn't, and that went on appeal. Um, But that's different to did a council properly encourage climate change adaptation. Um, There will be, actually before I say that, there are cases that look at specific facts. So flooding, which is a symptom of climate change or bushfire, which may be a risk, uh, sorry, a symptom of climate change. Um, Inundation from sea level, from seawater during a coastal storm, which is... Now or will be a symptom of climate change, but they're litigated in that way. They're litigated as a natural hazard, not as a climate change hazard. In relation to specific development. Yes, and, and in relation, that's right to a specific development in a specific
1: location. I don't know a lot of the details. I'm getting myself into hot water here, but I think there was a case in. Wasn't there a case in Wollongong uh, for the development of this residential? Um, uh, set of properties yes. and where the minister, I think, was yes. sued for not taking into account yes. uh, that failed, I think. That's the, right. the, that's right. okay.
0: Can I just ask Abbas whether you, you're finding, um, you know, the councils are very concerned about this sort of thing and how much attention they're putting to that question of litigation? And well, look, my, my, my uh,
1: interaction has been mostly with Shorthaven City Council and they've um, from the moment we've been interacting, there's been they've got a, an officer working on long-term planning to do with the climate change. There's a lot of interest in climate change. I mean, it's, it's, I think the, the, there's a great work done by Nicole Gurren from, from this university who uh, looked at this question specifically and, and published a paper a couple of years ago. And, and there's, it, 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 there's a wide variety, according to this paper. Um, some of the interest from climate change um, is, in a sense, unavoidable because of these issues of flooding... Uh, that even if the if the if the council wasn't interested or hadn't been interested five or six years ago, um, issues to do with flooding, if there are a coastal council, will have to things of you know things about pursuing protection issues, uh, private property protection issues, and so will have to come up. But this, as I understand it, there's quite a wide variety as to how far advanced different councils around New South Wales and Australia are. Uh, in terms of climate change. As it seems to me that there's a, uh, almost every council has given some thought about, about, about climate change. How far they've gone into the thinking about it, that's the impression that I got from Nicole's paper. And I think there are people from the council in the audience They might be able to give a better answer to, to the question.
0: Mm. Thank you. And there was uh, Maybe someone can answer that later, but meanwhile there's a question there.
1: Yeah, just a quick comment on water tenure. Uh, there Hi. is a houseboat... Which is sitting on shallow water in Pearl Bay and Mossman, it's been before the courts for about 30 years. So <laughs> it, it, it's, it's a complicated question. But My question is actually what role do you think the insurance industry has in this issue? Uh, you'd think that increasing insurance premium would be a natural feedback signal to encourage private adaptation without any intervention at a policy level at all.
2: Yes, I would agree with that and I think that um, there are a number of people who have done research on this question specifically and also looking at the role that banks and lenders play um, in, in that, in market-driven adaptation and I think there is a general sense um, in those communities and even within some local councils that eventually insurance and or lending criteria will make it too difficult for people to buy these properties anymore. Um, that will eventually mean that they are devalued to zero um, and there will obviously be social and economic consequences resulting from that. Um, in the interim, in the sort of more short to medium term, um, in, in my research, interview, insurance companies um, during interviews said to me then that they use a one-year time horizon in deciding policies even though they take into account longer-term um, trends and knowledge. So that was really a an, an non-answer um, to what I was hoping to, um, to achieve from my interview with them. Um, it's fraught and complex. And then there's reinsurers who have different criteria. A lot of insurers don't insure for saltwater intrusion, so they'll insure for flooding but not saltwater intrusion. So silver is a rise and serious issue. Um, and, and there will be... Hopefully not, but there will be something like the Brisbane floods that will prompt um, some change in that, in, in that space, I think.
0: Mm. Uh, well, I was just going to say that um, from what I know, I think the insurance industry was the first to get it amongst the business community about climate change and, and the risk. Um, we're nearly We are out of time. Is there one final question?
4: Thank you. Mine is a general question, but I grew up near the beach... I've spent a lot of time on the beach, but I have a belief that people should not build on the beach. Beaches are coastal systems, they're ecological systems, and at the end of everything, if you know, you have to bear the consequences. And my belief is that we should discourage people from building close to coastlines, not just because of climate change, but because... This sort of building interferes with the coastal system and beaches are for everybody. People shouldn't have private beaches.
0: Thank you. Thank
4: you. <laughs> That's a comment.
0: <laughs> but um, would you like to... Yeah, Abbas and... and...
1: Um, just really, I, 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 I couldn't agree more. Um, I think one of the things... I'm not an ecologist and so I haven't had a formation, uh, where, an academic formation, where... Um, I've been trained to understand how the beach works and how the ecosystem works. And yet when I started looking at those problems and, and doing research with my students about these problems, um, one of the things that strike you is um, what an imposition. You, you quickly dawn on you once you start looking at the erosion problems and what the dune's role is in re-nourishing the beach and the imposition, that is, uh, the denuding of the dune, removal of the vegetation, and putting some load on the dune in the form of assets, it's an incredibly stressful process. And even for somebody like me who's not an ecologist, who doesn't probably have the ecologist... I'm an environmental engineer, but I'm not an ecologist. I don't have that ecologist sensibility of, of deep understanding of the way it works. And yet... Um, It's incredibly striking. Is is once you remove from, you know, once you defamiliarize yourself from the idea that you could have built-up areas around around those dunes, uh, it it comes across as as you're describing as an incredible imposition. Um, Of course, the difficult question is how do you go from now uh, uh, to a place where you can relieve that stress? These these are where the toughest questions are, and I don't think there's an easy question there. But certainly thinking of the future in terms of reducing that stress, particularly because now we've got sea level rise, but not only only because of that, uh, I think is quite important.
2: I completely agree. Um, I've written about this um, in several places. It is difficult because of existing use rights, People who have built fishing shacks 50 years ago still have the right to redevelop that and put a big mansion right on the beach um, with little or no regard for the coastal ecology and wetland systems and other things that occur around the coast that are vitally important for not only the marine life but also the the dune system itself. Um, How you fix it, I don't know. I've I've tentatively suggested that rolling easements could be an option um, by government... Rolling easement, so the government issues a right to use the land and at certain trigger points the land has to be um, returned to a different different use, a natural use. Um, but it's difficult. There are so many houses already on those, on those um, areas that make a rolling easement difficult to implement practically. Um, in the UK they're building a coastal walk all around the UK, it's different, they're much smaller and they can do that, but that will have a dual um, effect, one will be to protect the natural system of the coast and the second one is to provide a barrier all around the UK Um, and it's couched as a tourism um, exercise so people can come um, from in England or outside and do a walk all around the UK if they like Um, and and so that's going to take about eight years um, to fully implement but... um, an option for them, not so much for us.
0: Well, thank you very much to our speakers, to the audience, um, Abbas and Tiana in particular. Thank you. It was absolutely fascinating discussion. Something we should be writing about a lot more. Um, I can see that we probably will. <laughs> and uh, that's the scary part of um, climate change because it's um, the most impactful of all. Thank you, everyone, for coming. And could we please give a hand to our speakers? And just a final thanks to the Sydney Environment Institute and Sydney Ideas for putting this on and the whole series. Thank you very much.